Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to WebRush. This is episode 146. And this week, along with my co-hosts of Dan and Ward, I'm John Papa. And we're going to talk about the mistakes that we make and still make <laughs> and how to move forward from them today. This is a, a Tales from the Trenches type of episode where we've uh, thought about some things that we've learned from over the years and how making mistakes is actually one of the best things you can do. So today we're going to talk about a couple different topics. Uh, Dan's going to talk about how you should forget how you got to a certain point, but plan for how to get through it. Uh, and that'll be his tale. And then Ward's going to lead us through some obligations to the truth and your managers and stakeholders. Um, wow, Ward with obligations. It sounds so professional. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Those of you who know me. <laughs> and then I'll wrap things up where I'm going to talk about how you can learn about your colleagues and their priorities and motivations and why this is really, really important to avoid falling into pitfalls. So, uh, Dan, to kick things off today, you're up first to talk about your tale. Uh, forget how you got here. I have no idea how I got here, Dan. Uh, I don't um, either. I just it's, showed up it's today. It's all a blur, isn't it, some days? I'm just like, how did I get <laughs> to this position in life, like what I'm doing? But, I, you know, Ward, I didn't realize you actually had failures because you're like genius. So maybe we should just oh. skip you and move right to... No. <laughs> Dan, my my story is a is just littered with bodies and failures along the way. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Well, mine is two actually. So uh, I'll, I'll kind of set the stage here with a little story to get us into it. So, and and Dan, before you let me interrupt you just a sec. Before we get into the stories themselves and the tales, maybe we can kind of just explain real quick why we felt like this episode would be really good for our our listeners um, and relatable to them because. These these are stories, right, that we don't feel like these are one-off stories that we've seen once no. out there, <laughs> right? I mean, well, like maybe you can start by explaining, Dan, why you feel like this was a good story for you to pick when, when we talked about this topic. Yeah, so uh, John, I, Ward, and Craig, who unfortunately couldn't make it, but he has some stories too, we decided to cover this because we all go through some pretty challenging situations at work. Uh, that come up, either are doing or maybe not are doing, but we got to deal with them. And uh, sometimes just learning from other people's lessons learned goes a long ways. Uh, in fact, the story I'm going to share, you know, had I had more experience at the time, I probably would have handled some things a little bit differently, you know, for example. So, uh, and, and I have learned a lot from John and Ward, for example, over the years on things they've done that they liked, things they didn't like, how they got out of situations in a good way and, you know, kept the client happy. And so, yeah, that's kind of the goal. Um, before I jump in, do you guys have anything you want to add to that kind of overall goal of this episode? No, I'm, I'm right there. I mean, certainly my story will speak to something that I see over and over again out there and that we all do, we're all tempted to do. And it's a cautionary tale. Um, so it's not just like some weird, you know, random thing where I was struck by lightning one day and I want you to know about it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm along the same veins with with uh, what I'm going to share today as well. And I think 
the common theme you're all seeing is that these are things that are very relatable to hopefully all of you out there uh, in the technology industry specifically. So that'll be our guidelines for this. Um, and things that not necessarily to say, you know, this is the only way to get through it, but sometimes when things are looking their bleakest, it's nice to know that somebody else has gone through something that you might be experiencing and that there is another side to it. So uh, with that, I guess enough preamble, Dan, I'd, I'd love to hear what what is your tale for everybody today? Yeah. So I had sadly a bunch I could have picked from, um, which I guess you could say in a way that's a good thing because I've learned a lot of good life lessons over the years. But it's also a bad thing because there's been a lot of stress from time to time. But I, I did settle on one um, that really stands out. So back around 2000 is when I started uh, kind of my consulting career. And so I had moved from more of an enterprise. Uh, in fact, I had two enterprise jobs at large companies. And then um, around 2000, I, you know, I had an opportunity for a pay bump and all that kind of stuff. So I said, well, I'm going to go to this consulting company, which uh, was kind of new as well. So they landed a bunch of projects, and one of them was a really large, I'm just going to say credit card company. Uh, I don't want to say the name because I'm still friends with a lot of the folks at this company. But uh, they are worldwide and very, very large. And the goal of this project was to allow internal people at this credit card company to assign interest rates to banks uh, for the rates they get charged as they use cards. And there's a lot that goes on behind that business rules wise. So to kind of sum up the intro to the story, uh, this was way back in the day. So this was classic ASP with COM uh, and COM plus. Now, if you don't know component object model, don't worry about it, but it was VB6 and C++ for the backend logic type stuff. So as uh, I got into the project, it was already about three quarters of the way done. Right. So I'm coming in to kind of finish up some things. They just needed some extra resources. I had just joined this company. Um, and when I jumped in, there wasn't really anything obvious that stood out. It looked like it was going pretty well. Uh, but the first thing we hit was the environments were different. And if anyone's done COM and COM Plus, uh, there's this thing called DCOM, distributed COM. And ports are a big deal <laughs> in distributed COM. Well, it turned out this company didn't have consistent environments between dev and staging. So that was the first thing we hit, and that really slowed us down. So kind of the lesson learned there was what do you do when that happens? And we ended up having a little workaround so that we could continue on our testing journey while they made the environment consistent. But that's not the big part of the story here. So moving along, that was kind of the first thing where I was like, huh, well, that's not normal um, because the other two companies I had been at, they had consistent environments between, you know, dev staging production. It was pretty good. Um, I don't know, Ward, John, you ever run into that or the environment? Like never, right? Where the environments weren't consistent. <laughs> exactly. The, I, I've worked at companies where we didn't even have environments. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I come from a period where, you know, nobody knew what an environment was. There was one That's environment. Right. It was production. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was pretty impressed at the environments because they're they're really complex environments. You know, keep in mind, this is a highly secured company. Um, in fact, to this day, if I was to pick a credit card, I'll, I'll go with this company because I know what goes into it. You know, it's very, very secure. So 
I'm now maybe a month into this project. It's three quarters of the way done. And it was just a stress right off the bat. And guess what happened? Everybody quit about a month in. I hope it wasn't because of me. <laughs> the Literally, the only two people remaining were me and the PM, the product project manager, um, who was super cool, by the way. Her name was Becky, and she's awesome. So... The other lesson learned there was if you're in management of IT or have anything to do with helping with morale of your you know, fellow colleagues, it really matters how many hours you are working them. Um, I literally was working from around nine in the morning till 12 at night every single day. It was so bad that my wife had to bring the kids in. My kids were little back then to see me. And they would buy us dinner, the company, which is never a good sign. Um, but literally everyone quit uh, because it was just too many hours. It was too stressful. But we're almost done. So I'm hanging on. The PM's hanging on. Um, we had some side people trying to help. Um, but it was, it was pretty nasty at this point. Um, so we get to the point where we're ready for user acceptance testing. And this was a really big critical point because of all the uh, systems we had to integrate with. And three days before we start, we uh, the PM gets an email and she comes to me and goes, guess what? We have three days to encrypt 14 fields in the database. They didn't apparently note this up front. So the first lesson learned here is gathering requirements matters, even if it's just for your sprint or, you know, some people still do waterfall and whatever, but we, it was one of those things, it was serious because changing your comm objects, changing your decom, all that stuff, that, that would have been a massive effort. Hey, John, I have this great idea for a mobile app. I want to use native features like the camera, photo gallery, and geolocation, but I just don't have the time to learn a new language like Swift. Yeah, but you do know JavaScript and web tech like React, Angular, and Vue, right? I do, but how does that help me? Well, if you use the Ionic framework, you can use your JavaScript skills and you get fully styled iOS and Android mobile components. Plus, it uses a capacitor to talk to all the native device platforms. So if I use Ionic and capacitor, I don't have to learn a new language. My JavaScript skills give me what I need to build a cross-platform app. Absolutely. And you can check it out at ionic.link slash web rush. I'll do it. When something like that happened, was there no flexibility on the delivery time? Were you already <laughs> late? Or, I mean, like, you know, something like that can happen. We all know it can happen. But there, I guess you'll get to whether there, what could have been or should have been done. But it's, you know, I'm sitting here and saying, I, I'm seeing this happen all the time. And I'm saying, you know, what about the schedule? So I take it there was tremendous schedule pressure. Tremendous. But that was maybe lesson two. The first is have a consistent environment, which these days is a little better. But like you said, back then it wasn't. It was a little more Wild West. Second lesson here, it's okay to push back, folks. Uh, we did not. Uh, it was a high-dollar project. I won't say the amount. I knew it. But it was a very high-dollar project. And I think the company, because they were newer, the consulting company, was just plain scared to push back. I know I was. I was new to the company still, and I was scared to push back because I didn't even hardly know the stakeholders at all. Um, so here's what happened. We're given three days 
to now somehow encrypt 14 fields in the database. And by the way, these were the interest rate fields because they remembered they don't want banks accidentally seeing if somehow a hacker got in that, oh, Ward's bank gets a cheaper rate than John's bank because uh, you know that's not a good thing for business. They charge different rates to the banks, apparently. Three days. Three days. This is no joke. Three days. They literally didn't mention this in any of the previous calls. And I asked Becky, I'm like, didn't this come up before? She's like, never. They just, I don't know. They didn't think about it. And apparently we didn't think to ask. So the next lesson learned there is this is now a pretty critical time period. We, I'll I'll tell you what we did and it kind of worked, but then miraculously went up in flames. Um, We should have pushed back at that point and said, there's no way we can do this in three days because it was just way too much work. Plus, keep in mind back then, moving between environments was not like it was today where things are more automated. Back then, it was very manual in what we did. All right. So, Ward, let's go to what you said. Like, First off, yes, we should have pushed back. That'd be the lesson learned there. I have another so, thought about that, Dan, as you were saying. Sure, it. sure. Because you said that what you you know what you feel like you should have done is you said there's told them that there's no way that you could guys could do it in three days, you know what what and maybe the one of the things I might recommend is that you say it isn't just that we can't do it you don't want us to do exactly. it exactly three days look exactly. at your risk what are you putting on the line what if we can't do it in three days or we actually do it in three days and we don't succeed. What will your cost be? Are you thinking about business risk properly? Um, Because that puts it back in the language. It's not like what I can't do or I won't do. It's like, hey, you've got a stake in this too, Mr. Business. Absolutely. Carry on. No, I I think it's a great point. I don't know. I was on those calls. Becky kind of drove those back then. She was our PM and she was great, by the way. She had a great relationship with the stakeholders, which is another lesson learned. I learned a lot from her, but I think that would have been a good approach. Well, here's what we did, and then I'll get to the finale here. So I I realized that changing the code just wasn't going to happen in three days. There was way too much. We had a C++ uh, crypto object, and to then integrate that back into our VB6 stuff, plus do all our tests and and get that all proven out in three days, it just wasn't going to happen. There was no way. At least not to do like you said, Ward, where we didn't want risk to them as well, you know, because this is a highly secured operation. I wouldn't do that today in three days. And no, no. And back then was just insanity. But I came up with this bright idea. Um, the database we were using allowed for uh, C++ callouts to uh, APIs that you could write. And so I said, well, if we could just go in, we had tons of store procedures. And I said, if we could just go into the store procedures and when we, right before we do the insert, we get that data, we make the call out uh, to our C++ object and we should be good to go. And we were, and guess what? We already had the C++ object. It was just a little bit of code to update the store procedures. I can't remember if they all use the same procedure or one, but it wasn't too bad. And literally within like 24 hours, we had that solution proven out and and everybody was happy. So now the next lesson learned is 
and this is one definitely on me, is I came up with the solution. We implemented it. It worked. So we thought. Um, and then we moved on. All right. So now we're kind of jumping to conclusions. We didn't do some serious prototyping. Like I said, we literally nailed this in like 24 hours, which is pretty ridiculous. So here's what happened. We start user acceptance testing. Everybody's happy. We met the deadline, right? Like we look like geniuses. It turns out, and this was later proven, um, the database, I won't say which one it was. Keep in mind, this is about 2000, so it was pretty old. There was a bug that would randomly come up when you called out to these external C++ APIs. Nobody knew about it. We didn't know about it. Even the database company didn't know about it at the time. Um, in fact, they fixed that right after because of us. So long story short, they get about two weeks into user acceptance testing. It was a, if I remember right, it was a three-week process. Um, and they did serious testing. Um, and keep in mind, this is user acceptance testing. This isn't like integration testing, unit test, none of that. This is just users. About two weeks in, it'd be like John or Ward calling me up and going, hey, all of a sudden we don't see the interest rates anymore. We just see gibberish. And I'm like, ooh, okay, that's not good. Um, and what happened was somehow the bug led to an invalid encryption. And you all know how that goes, Ward. John, once you mess up your encrypted data, there ain't no going back. So the only way was backups, which we did. Um, and then guess what happened? The bug cropped up again. So um, the project went on hold. I'll wrap up here. Project went on hold. They brought in this company of the database. They found that there was indeed a bug. Long story short, after a significant investment, that entire project literally just got canceled. Um, they didn't even pursue it after that. It literally just got canceled. It was the worst project I've ever been on, the biggest failure I've ever been on. So to wrap up lessons learned here, number one, um, estimation matters. And if you're not going to meet, your, estimation's hard, though. If you're not going to meet your estimates, push back. And do it in a way like Ward said, though. Like, you don't want us to rush this because uh, it's going to mess things up. Number two, if you have a bright idea for a last-minute change, you might want to change your timeline <laughs> to adequately account for real prototyping and testing. Um, we should have spent probably a week or more just making sure that it worked as, you know, advertised. And then hopefully we would have caught that bug. Um Number three, I'd say that the good news here is uh, our PM, she had great relationship with the stakeholders. So uh, don't underestimate how having a friendly, as appropriate relationship with your stakeholders will, it goes a long way. Now for this project, sadly, that didn't help. Um, but there you go. There's one of the biggest failures I've ever been on. And uh, sadly, that app never saw the light of day. That sounds so right. The app failing? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, and so 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 true, so authentic. Yeah, uh, yeah. seeing that happen, and here, you know, I, I think back to that schedule thing. They had they were under tremendous pressure to deliver something, and what happened as a result of that pressure? They didn't deliver at all. Exactly. So, so one of the things I'm sitting here thinking is, you know, it, it, what could what could have happened? You could have said, look, you have the schedule. Either the schedule can slip, or what happens? If we don't have this feature for a month, 
this feature that you never even listed as a requirement. What yep. could could we game plan this so if we put we give ourselves a month or two months where it's not encrypted, what would be our game plan to go back and you know make sure that, that we have a new release that also cleans up the data? We've got two months of exposure of this data that isn't encrypted, that's therefore vulnerable, but you never thought that was important in the first place. Would you ship it? These are the questions. And it was in staging, by the way. You know, we hadn't even we hadn't even gone to production yet. It was still staging, so that would have been a totally viable thing. What are the viable ways out of this? Maybe you could have done a limited release. Maybe you could have put a war. You know, there's all. Maybe it could have been announced as a beta. You know, there's all kinds of ways in which you could. You could, but you were too young. As a as a as a developer, you could have helped the business see their options exactly. instead of giving them this one option. So I think another lesson here is don't give your business only one option. Give them options. No, I think that's all great points. And, and you're exactly right. I was just two, you know, I've been to two companies before that. So maybe four years in or so into my career. So, you know, I knew some development stuff, but I definitely didn't understand the PM side of it, you know, the project management side of it very well. I didn't run that. And let's just say I learned, I'll never forget all the lessons I learned from that project. Um, in fact, if that ever came up again, I can guarantee I would do a lot of what you said. I know so. you would. You wouldn't even think. But but this is, today is uh, lessons for young developers. I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, there's so many different uh, experiences I've gone through, even recently. I don't think it's just for young developers. Uh, I don't consider myself young anymore, unfortunately. But uh, there's a lot of these things that, Dan, you're, you're saying that resonate with me and just... You know, sometimes deadlines are short. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure uh, and you feel like the only thing you can do is just drive through whatever you're you're on. Uh, it's got to be done. It's got to be done now. I've got to put more hours in. The whole team's pushing. Uh, but something you said early on really, really clicked in my head. And that's, I really try hard these days when that I'm in those situations. And I'm still in those situations uh, a lot. I work for companies and companies have deadlines. To stop and think, okay, what's going to happen if I do push through this? The likelihood of a successful rollout is pretty darn low. And then after it rolls out, the, the biggest lie we tell ourselves is, oh, as soon as I get through this, things will lighten up. It, it isn't going to lighten up once you roll out because you're still going to have to deal with the constant fallout of things breaking, the application not working, the stakeholders having compromises and needing more changes. Oh, and by the way, your budget is used up, so now you're on to something else. So, like, there's only one person left, you, managing the thing. None of those things are good. So rolling out a project in a tight deadline when all those things are happening to you, Dan, I, in my experience, I've never, ever had one of those that rolled out. And afterwards, I was like, wow, yeah, that, that was, was great. Amazing. It actually worked. No, yeah. No, I, I would add, um, if you're filling, if you're making decisions when you know you are super stressed and everyone in the room is super stressed, it's probably time to step away for a little bit and say, hey, we need yes. some time to think through this, this through more versus we made a decision in, you know, well, it would have been, I said 24 hours, but in, in reality, it would have been in less than probably a 12 hour period. And that included meetings with them, discussing it. And what we should have done is literally stepped away. And said, what are the ramifications? All those things you guys went through. Yeah, this is not the person sitting, you know, with their finger on the button for a nuclear war going on at this point. These are not those kind of high stress things. And 
the, the outcomes are not, you know, that inevitable with it. This is, you know, we're building technology and the world is not going to fall apart if something doesn't go live. And I know it may feel that way sometimes at work and your boss is maybe putting pressure on you. Uh, but I know Ward has some lessons that he shared and I think are partly in his story as well of how to, how to deal with those expectations. Because it's one thing to say, Dan, a younger Dan knows the right thing, but doesn't necessarily know how to push back on management or the stakeholders. Um, and maybe, you know, even older Dan sometimes doesn't get that too. We all feel like that. Um, but Ward, I know you've got some good lessons uh, related to that, so I won't dive too much for, more into it. Well, yes, I do. Uh, and I had to reach for one. <laughs> uh, so, you know, mine is a tech. I should also say, by the way, when we, we discussed these topics, none of us had to think too hard no, no, <laughs> about no, mistakes we've made. I, the only way we to think is which one will I tell? That's exactly right. I was just <laughs> yes. going to say that. That was the hard part. Like, which of the many should I bring up? So, so Dan's is kind of... Uh, you know, he's rocking a hard place and all that. Mine is a mine is a tale of arrogance. My arrogance, uh, and I know that shocks everybody to hear that. That, <laughs> that but uh, uh, so you know, it's, it's somewhat inspired. But I, I I get on Twitter, you know, like the rest of you, and I see all this talk about management. And God, yeah, who could who couldn't agree that managers are clueless? Uh, they're only interested in their own careers, you know, they're fickle, they're always changing their minds and the specs and canceling projects, and and they're just, uh, it's always politics. It's always them, right? Uh, hey, yeah, there are really terrible managers, and I'm sure we've all had them, but there are a lot of terrible developers out there, too, and this is kind of a tale of a terrible developer, a me. Um <laughs> Uh, so I, you know, I, I ha it's haunted me forever. I have to go back a long ways, like 1980, um, uh, for this one. Uh, it was when I was young and I knew everything. Uh, and I was hired by, and I can say it, Merrill Lynch, because nobody's, you know, that was 1980. Nobody's there anymore. Um, uh, to implement a, uh, a new, uh, financial product, um, that they had, which is arbitraging fixed income securities. Now, that doesn't really matter. What matters is what you're doing is you've got um, prices from different securities and you're comparing them and you're looking for changes that aren't don't make sense. And that's what a market trader can see. You know, the program was supposed to pop out these things that had extraordinary sudden differences in prices. And then a trader would look at it and say, ooh, that's a mistake in the market. I'm going to exploit it and make some money. So my job was to to compare all these these basket of securities and you know throw a little math at it and find you know differences and pop them up so that the trader could do could act on it. And uh, you know what would this take? It's not that big a deal. Maybe a month, um, but. You see, um, there was this new technology that I've been reading about, uh, and I thought it was so uh -oh. cool. <laughs> and it turned out there were no commercial implementations available for it at the time, or that's what I thought. I didn't actually research it. This is a mistake, too, right? You know, um, but I didn't research it too much. I, I, you know, I just thought this thing was the cat's pajamas. Um, and this thing was called the relational database. 
This was before there were any. You couldn't buy any. There were indexed files. There were hierarchical database systems. You know, what we know today, by the way, and this is so funny, is the non-relational database. Um, so it's kind of like this thing comes full circle, right? Now now it's the non-relational database, but they're supposed to kick away the relational database. And every and I can see, I see people today say, well, we're not going to use a relational database. We're going to use a non-relational database and they're going to make the same mistake I made going the other direction. Um, anyway, I told my manager that his solution for this, this arbitrage program was a relational database, that it required a relational database to do it. And this is patently untrue. And, and I think I knew it. I think I knew it was untrue. So I really, I lied to the management. Uh, but I lied for its own good, right? Because, and this is something we are, you know, like, oh, you know, they really do need this technology. And I don't, I'll never be able to explain it to them why they need this new technology. So I'm just going to tell them that they need this new technology. Uh, and this is something that um, you'll probably do you've, or have done or something like that someday, you of you out there listening. Uh, what I was doing is I was exploiting that management's cluelessness, right? to get the technology that I personally thought they should have. Um, and yeah, I just, uh, now was this kind of a white lie? Um, you know, by the way, we do tell, uh, the, the whole industry has a history of these white lies. Remember Y2K? Remember when everybody, you know, we convinced, everybody was concerned that when it turned to the year 2000, all these existing programs would break. Uh, so what a lot of people did was they used that as an excuse to retire a lot of technical debt and redo programs that they'd always wanted to get to and couldn't get budget for. Does that sound familiar to you guys? No. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, oh, yes. and it had nothing, years ago that, now, it had nothing to do with Y2K. So that's a sort of a very popular example of this thing where you think you've got this technology they got to do. And we lie to management. Well, it gets worse. Um, I told him I could just write this little relational database thing in a month, something that had never been done. <laughs> and I'm a kid, right? <laughs> and, and then I could just finish the arbitrage project on the basis of that in a couple more weeks. And so I started it, and I started writing my own RDB, and one month, one month went by, and then another month, and then another month. And I'm working day and night, and he looked at me very sympathetic. I was there in that office from sun up, sun past, long past sundown. And he said, "Wow, man, this fixed income security project must really be hard. It must take a genius to do this thing." Because, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, and I'm sweating bullets, and I know I'm making a terrible mistake, and it's not working. I finally get it done, and it's a piece of crap, and nobody in the world will ever use this thing. It, nobody would ever see it. Nobody wants a homebrew relational database that half works that's written in APL, ever. <laughs> so uh, then, of course, it only took me a couple of weeks to write the, the project itself, That you know, because right. I had been right about that part. I could have done the whole, uh, you know, the arbitrage application. The database did not matter. And I got paid for it. And the, God, no, he was happy for it, I guess, because, you know, Merrill Lynch had deep pockets and the program made a lot of money for them, I guess. Um, 
But I'll never forget that um, I lied to management and I lied to myself uh, to get the technology that I wanted that they didn't need. And I uh, built something that was completely unnecessary. It was a piece of crap. And it made the project six months late, costing them five times as much because they had to pay me. But more importantly, they delivered it six months later in the market than they would have and lost all the revenue that they would have made, which could have been millions, um, had they had it the way I did it. What are my lessons? Well, you know, it's aside from the beware of shiny new things thing, this is really, that's kind of general thing, but this is really looking at myself. You know, um, managers have to trust us. Managers trust us to give them the right information. And this is kind of going back to your story too, Dan. Um, in some level, they put their trust in you to tell them. They want you to tell them when they're making a mistake because they can't see it. They don't know. But of course, we've all, as developers, given them a lot of reasons to mistrust us. So when they look at us and, and they behave in a way that shows they don't trust us, they have good reason because we let them down. Um, I don't, by the way, I no longer trust developers myself. I don't, <laughs> and I'll bet you, I talk to you guys and you don't either. You know, you guys are constantly, you know, people come to you, oh, we can't, you know, when you hear a development shop tell you, we can't do that because of this, any other thing, and they make some shit up, forgive my French. Um, you know, we've got, we got the nose for that because we've done it ourselves. Um, so the, and the other thing is, uh, I didn't care. I didn't care what he thought. I didn't care what his problems were. I didn't care that he needed it. The only thing I cared about was my little world because my world of technology was more important than his business. That's something we've got to turn around. We got to look at our, our things, just like your story, Dan, and say, what, what is the business case for this product? What are, what, what, what will make the manager succeed or not? His career actually does matter. He's making it possible for me to do my work, he or she now, to make it possible for me to do my work. I, you know, I have an obligation to help that person succeed and help the business succeed. And that's part of being a great developer. And I'll, um, I'll never forget that, that lesson about and, and that obligation I have um, to uh, tell the truth and help the business um, succeed, not just do what's convenient for me. So, John, one of the things I like about AG Grid, which is a, a data grid component for the kind of complex uh, grid scenarios that we encounter all the time in enterprise apps, one of the things I really like about it is that it works for a variety of frameworks, Angular, React, Vue, or, or just vanilla JS. Does that ring a bell for you? No, it really does. There's all these different companies that I work with where they have no choice but to use a lot of these different tools because they have different teams working on them. So being able to port their code or share that code and that technical investment they have is really important to them. Yeah, well, it's important to us, uh, ideally, we're a consulting company. And, you know, we never know what our client's going to want to use, Angular, React, Vue, but they're all going to need a grid. And it's great to be able to reach for uh, the one grid that works everywhere, AG Grid. You know, at any size company, too, because you could have these teams that maybe they only use one framework, but eventually they're going to switch to another one and be able to take that investment again and use it, reuse it is really nice. So if a multi-framework data grid makes sense to you, 
please go check out AG Grid at ag-grid.com. What, what would you do, Ward? Because I think the challenge there is you, and I've been caught up in this too, you're so caught up, like you said, in your little world and your tech that you want to use. How do you catch that though? You know, like what would you, looking back, what would you do that would have changed so that you didn't approach it that way? Because sometimes we're just so caught up, we can't even see past our, you know, nose. I think, I, I think you probably have to look at what your recommendations and where the high risk areas are. One, what, you know, and what are the things that I'm most fond of here and do they matter? Um, and this comes up like, am I going to switch from Angular to React? Am I going, <laughs> um, you know, oh, yeah. um, <clears throat> am I going to, am I going to use a non-relational database? What, you know, am I going to force some new unknown technology or am I going to add a new m- moving piece that I don't control to this, uh, uh, to this project? And why do I think that's really necessary? Um, is it really necessary? The second thing, and it goes back to your story as well, is you got to ask the question, what would happen if I didn't do that? Or what would happen if I didn't do that now? Um, and that's hard, but that's got to be part of the script I give myself, um, when I talk to people. And finally, when a manager is skeptical of something I'm recommending, I can't dismiss that. You know, the manager's telling me, and that manager's telling me something, and he's got fears, and I, if I can't articulate what those fears are and give them a clear place to land if I've got something wrong, I'm not doing my job. And so I've got to make that part of the script. When I put together a presentation, when I put together an estimate, I got to think about those things. And I, I, just to wrap up and then we'll let John jump in. But um, I think it really comes down to when I was younger, I did tend to think that my way was a good way. Um, and uh, not that I can't do that as I'm older, as I, I guarantee I have some folks in the family would probably say I still do that. But I think taking a step back and being willing to be critiqued on your ideas in like team meetings. Now in my case, and maybe yours too, Ward, I don't know. Everybody quit. It was just me. I was the last remaining technical person on this project, but at the company, there was tons of people. And so I wish I would have just knocked on somebody's door or walked in their cube and been like, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this relational database idea? Because when you think you know it all, that's pretty much when you've lost me these days. Um, Because it's just not... It's not what I think, it's what we as a team think. So being a kind of team player and leveraging your team, I think is a big deal. And empathy for every, up the chain as well, right? You know, we have this habit of thinking that management is our enemy. I see it on Twitter all the time, people complaining about their manager or why this, why did the requirements change or why, you know, hey, you know what? Let's, let's, uh, what forces, what pressures are they under? Right. Um, that's a, that I don't want to lose that. I don't lose that. And I can't lose that. I'm a, I am run a consulting business as, an, as a consultant. If you ever hope to either become manager or become a consultant yourself, you will become much more aware of um, the forces and pressures that are work uh, at work on the people who hire you and their anxieties. And you will 
you know, you, you just got to think about that. Um, uh, so, yeah, John. Great point. Yeah, you know, you're, you're teeing up part of what I wanted to talk about pretty well today, too. And that's um, what, what I'm going to do is tell three very short stories about something that I feel like I've learned uh, and I'm still evolving how I deal with. And I bet you there's something in each of these that all you out there can uh, can understand and commiserate with. And, and the summary of these three are, the first one is difficult communication. Sometimes it's really important to have difficult communication. Uh, the second one is influence through listening. So being able to listen to people, understand how to influence without talking. Uh, and the third one is how to speak their language. So another way to say it is to go where they are. Uh, and these are my three short tales. And they, they lend into and bleed into some stuff that Dan and Ward has already said, especially when it comes to how to work with management and colleagues around you. Uh, so the first one is, really, it's this. I'll get to the punchline. Tell me what you can do, not what you can't. Many times throughout my career, this has happened to me or I've done it myself. Uh, and I'll give you some, some more recent ones here. Of, I remember being on a project where I was being asked to do something that was just, doesn't matter what it was, it was just something I didn't feel like I could get done within the time, within the constraints, within the requirements, uh, within the budget, etc. And instead of just telling them, I can't do that, but I can do this, instead, this is how I've handled those situations um, incorrectly in my past. Either I have told them, I can't do it. And then you're just sitting there staring at your managers and stakeholders and they're like, well, that's not going to work for me. You know, I'm employed by these people and I'm telling them I can't do the job. Um, what do you think the conclusion of that's going to be? Uh, you know, or the, the other thing I've done, which is almost worse in some ways, is, well, you know what, let me just not tell them. You know, I'm just going to continue doing my job and the deadline's going to come. And that day, I'll just let them know by that day. If it doesn't work out that day, then I'll let them know it's not going to work. Uh, and I see that one all the time still. I see both, John. Those are really big, big uh, things that happen all the time. And and the second one is passive aggressive. And I really dislike that. Um yeah, and it's tough because nobody, I don't think anybody really intends to do that. Like we all want to get the work done and we all want to have the confidence in our abilities, but sometimes it goes way beyond abilities. Yep. And we just need to be honest with ourselves and have those difficult conversations with our stakeholders and say, look, what you're asking for is this. Yeah. Given these reasons and this data, I don't think that can be done. Don't stop there. But... Here's what I believe we can do. Will this work for you? And then work with them to figure out a plan as opposed to just either ignoring it or, you know, just saying at this point, I can't do it. Because that's the other side is the, I, it can't be done. I can't yeah, do it. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear that. Or, or to make a rushed decision. Like I talked about earlier. Yes. Um, that's almost just as bad as saying I can't do anything, you know, because you might actually make the situation worse. And I'll even put this into a relationship uh, analogy too. Um, let's say Dan can't make the podcast and this is the most urgent thing in the world to me at the moment in time, you know, and he's committed to doing this. 
Uh, and he's he's given me a month's notice that he's going to he's he's accepted my meeting invite for the podcast. Dan Walling's going to be there. I'm counting on him for this. I feel like this thing. is a real life story, John. But go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally fictitious. And and with that, let's say that um, it's, it's um, for whatever reason, I really need Dan to be there that particular day. Dan knows he's not going to be there with three weeks to go. What does Dan do? Does Dan just not show up? And let the three weeks go by. Does does Dan call me to tell me? I mean, the, obviously, right the right answer is you know Dan would say, "Hey, John, look, something came up. I can't make this. Let's work our way around it." It's having a conversation. He knows in this case that I'm not going to be happy to hear that, but I'm a heck of a lot happier knowing three weeks out that I would be showing up and being like, "Where is he?" So these are things that are common sense, but I feel like sometimes when we're under pressure, uh, as Dan said, with the time constraints earlier in, in his conversation, you know, there's a variant on what we you have said, to really John. stop. There's a variant on one of the one of those that I hear a lot, um, and I hear it at big companies, and, but uh, and small, but mostly big companies, where somebody says, "I'll get fired if I tell them this," and it's kind of like, yeah, so get fired. That's my reaction. If you feel yourself saying to yourself, I'll be fired if I tell the truth about X, then you should say, I am really excited about looking for my next job because there should be nothing that you can't tell the truth about. Um, yeah. But yeah, more important, more. right? I mean, your job is not that important. Um, and so that's Agreed. a telltale. Uh, and the, the other thing that you were saying, John, which, you know, you were saying come with a solution. Let's suppose you've racked your brain and you just don't have a solution. You know, there ain't not, you know, I'm, and you really should. But you have to come with what you were describing as sort of the open conversational approach and say, you know, we are in a bind, but we're in this bind together. I don't know what to do about it. Can you help me think this through or how, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure this through. Yeah, but it has to be the opening of the conversation if you really, really honestly don't have alternatives. Best to come with alternatives. So. Absolutely. And and I'm going to leave, that's actually blending into the conversations, folks, my my number two story, which is influence through listening. Uh, there's been twice I can think of two different examples in my career where this has been recently in the last five years or so where it's been really helpful. Uh, and the most recent one is I was working with some teams where I was told, okay, we need, we need to work with this other team and uh, these two teams need to work together really well. And it's just not happening. And when I dove in a little bit, I first tried to figure out why isn't it working? All I kept on hearing was, well, team A is really difficult. Team B is really difficult from both sides. And what I was trying to figure out was, and I was on one of these teams, and I was trying to figure out was why, what, what, is, what is the issue here? And the real problem was nobody really understood from the other teams what their goals or motivations were. What were their business priorities? And they had some overlap, but all they were focusing on was the parts that were different. This team, team A needs to do X and team B needs to do Y. And those things don't overlap, so therefore we're at an impasse. Well, where are your crossovers? So my recommendation on this, and this is what I did to kind of go through that, is I spent a lot of time listening to both teams. I went and interviewed people on the teams, mostly just asked questions and took notes to find out what is it? that's important to you? And how can we make this work? Uh, another way of saying this is repairing relationships. It goes a long way with people when you just listen to their perspectives. Uh, another example of this was uh, I was at Disney years ago. And I remember telling Ward about this because I think Ward, you're actually 
were a recipient of when I was on one of these uh, roadshow tours that I did. I was on a team who was supposed to effectively get everybody in the company using the same technology architecture. And first of all, I didn't entirely agree with that because there's always, you know, right tool for the right job, as Dan often says. Um, so we, we tried to adapt it a little bit with our, with our management. But the key was, if you just implement something and expect thousands of people, which is literally the case, what I was being told with my team, to just use what you're building, why would anybody use what you build? Like, think about Angular, React, all these technologies that are out there. People don't just build it and then say, go use it the way it is. There's a lot of listening and feedback and community involvement. And so the lesson I learned from this was we did these roadshows to go out to different parts of the company and not tell them what we were going to build for them, but ask them what they needed. Ask them what they wanted. See if they wanted to contribute and really go through it. And it took longer to get started. But once we got started, we had adoption. We had people working with us. And there's some people, quite frankly, who never got on board. And that's okay. You're not going to get 100% agreement on anything with anything in life. I mean, come on. But by doing these roadshow ideas, or basically we put together a, a series of, here's what we want to do. Here's where we think we want to go. Where do you see yourselves and what are we missing? What are the gaps? What would you like to add to this? What would you take away? And by having those conversations, really, we were influencing the solution by listening to what people were saying. Do you remember I took that trip out to California? Oh, yeah. And, uh... Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, as a developer, your listening skills, that's, I don't forget about learning new technology. <laughs> Learn how to listen. <laughs> well, I... You know, how many meetings have you guys been in? And I, I have been guilty of this myself. I absolutely will admit that. But how many meetings have you been in where you know somebody from your team or another is just going to dominate the meeting talking? And so it's really hard to get stuff done because they just don't listen. They won't even stop. You know, they won't shut up. Yes. Um, I can think of several situations. Anyway, uh, when that happens, you know, how do you feel? And usually the answer is for me is like, you know, me, I'm like, dude, shut up. We're trying to get some work done here. I don't say that, of course. But listening, um, as you both just alluded to, that is like, if you want to pick a soft skill that you could improve as a developer, start with listening, maybe humility, and then maybe listening. Um, and, and, you know, everybody sort of knows learn that, Dan. So how do, you, how do you know whether you're listening? Uh, yeah, yeah. One of the things I would, you know, I, I think I'm, this is where, you know, if there's a role for management, it's to coach their their people, right, John? Yeah. And um, you know, so you give them a, you know, somebody like you give them who you think isn't listening, you give them a test. You say, okay, so I want you to write down what's that, what that person said, or what that, or what the business goal of this thing is, or what, why, why, how this product works in the business. Give them a test, um, and you'll find out if they listen. If they can't represent the point of view that they violently disagree with or we're just hearing, then that's how it becomes really stark for that person that they didn't listen. And it's a good self-exercise um, to be able to represent ac as accurately as you can the position that you disagree with. Um, I had another thought for you, John, there. If, suppose there was the, you had these two teams that couldn't talk um, and you were sort of being that bridge 
did the manager of that team ever consider breaking those teams up, like swapping member, some members of them so that some member of a team A joined B and B joined A? Because so I was thinking that might have um, opened the both teams up to listening. What do you think? That, that's actually something we did quite a bit on that team and project. Uh, people we've had on this show, uh, Michael Callahan, for example, was somebody we brought in on my team from another team. His job was to use the architectures we built um, in projects he was deploying out there for Disney at the time. And what we did is we brought people like Michael and others in from teams who were actually doing the development work for the customers to come and do like rotations through our team to help contribute so we could get the perspectives and vice versa. We helped deliver their projects too. So it was a lot of this, um, I don't know what you call it, rotational assignments is what we use. Cross-fertilization. It's hard to get <laughs> yeah. cross-fertilization. There you go. That's such, John, that's such an important like way of dealing with things because there's a difference between I'm going to shove this down your throat and you're going to like it, you know, this architecture, whatever it is. Ivory tower. Yep. Versus, hey, here's what we're thinking. We'd like to get your input and you actually accept and listen to that input. Now, guess what? You're probably buddies or at least, you know, or can talk well. And it's no longer a sale. Now it's a, we believe in the idea. You can also disagree and commit, oh, yeah. right? Like it's oh, okay yeah. to disagree as long as you commit to something at the end of it as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. You know, this leads into my, my third and final piece of this, which is how to speak their language. I'll tell you the wrong thing I did and then the way I tried to correct it. Uh, I was on a project where I was brought in because it just seemed like everything, I was told everything is on fire. And honestly, the technology that I was told it was, was something I had no experience with. It was, they told me it was PHP and I had never done a lick of PHP in my life. Uh, and I said, they're like, we just need you to figure out what's going on. We've got the stakeholders, our business people telling us this is not working for them. And when I asked why, the manager told me they didn't know why. So I had to go find that out. We had the consulting company who was working on the technology coming in and telling us, this is what you asked for. Um, I was trying to figure out, well, where are the specs? Was never given those. And then there were the people, the project managers in the middle trying to figure out how do I make this thing get delivered? Because the vice presidents were all like, this thing's due and it cost, you know, millions of dollars. Uh, so I came in and I, I tried to do as much listening as I could. And the first thing I did was a mistake. Here's what I found. I'll give you one simple example. The website that this was for was for taking orders at a company that was pulling in hundreds of millions of dollars through these orders. And the order site was taking anywhere from 30 to 90 seconds to load. And once it was loaded, every screen switch or save or just pressing the button to move to the next thing was taking 30 seconds or more as well. Yikes. So... <laughs> It was just awful that what was happening here. And what I tried to do is I instantly went to the solution. I knew how to fix it. I knew how to get this thing to be at least sub five seconds. And I started introducing the concepts of build tools and bundling and minification and, and you know, all an image reduction and all this kind of stuff. And I wasn't speaking their language. The business didn't know what the heck I was talking about. The consulting company was like, you know, we don't need this stuff over here because of the way they were working with it, which we can get into why that was, but it just wasn't speaking their language. I spent a little more time the next day I came in and I pitched the same solution in a different way. And what I showed them was I said, look, let me ask you the business. 
what is it about this that's so bad? They're like, well, it takes 90 seconds to load. So why is that bad though? What's happening? They're like, well, our customers are being put on hold and customers are going away and disappearing. I said, well, let's keep going. Why is that bad? You think you know the answer here, right? But they said, well, we're losing so many dollars every time we lose a customer or every second. And I said, well, do you have any kind of data that shows how much money you're losing based upon the time delays? said, actually, we have data here. And they came up with some data that said, we're going to lose X amount of millions of dollars for every one, two, or three seconds over three seconds it takes to load. And I'm making this part up. It, they had data. It's been years. I don't remember exactly what it was. And once they said that, I then went to the business company, so, uh, the technology company, and I, I said, okay, you just heard that. Because you're now almost 90 seconds over their threshold, look how much money this is costing them. What can you do to mitigate that and get it back under? And what's it going to take? And it, that by doing that, it gave it, it facilitated a conversation to figure out how can we get this done? And the interesting part was while they were discussing it, I had myself and another guy go and we actually implemented a couple of uh, changes um, the night before. We did uh, image minification. We did bundling. We did all that kind of stuff that you're supposed to do uh, just as a proof of concept to show them how you could get the site down from however many megs it was to just a couple K and show them the difference in load times. And it wasn't that we were heroes or heroines in some way. It was because I knew the solution, but I had to figure out how to get the business who didn't know the technology and how to get the consultants who were just looking at the deadlines to come to some kind of universal communication. Yep. That's just so important. Um, you know, because I, I know you're really good at this too, John, because you've done it in talks and even in meetings I've been in with you, is just the whole ability to tell the story and create a story around the scenario instead of just babbling technical, techno uh, babble. Um, because like you said, management might be going, okay, John sounds really smart, but I have no idea what he's talking about. But yeah. when you frame that in a story that they can relate to, um, wow, does that first off, open them up because now they understand and now they can ask valid questions. And, you know, who knows? I might learn something that I didn't consider in my story. Yeah, like a great piece of that was, uh, I think I've mentioned this before in the show, is there was an error page where, okay, so you got to an error page. Well, they were convinced, the technology company, that they wanted to show a five meg image on the error page. <laughs> it was an animated GIF. And I'm like, so you're telling me, and it took however many seconds to load at the time. So, so you're telling me that when your users have an error and they're already frustrated, you're then going to make them wait 10 seconds to load a picture that you think is funny. And they're like, well, not when you put it that way. No. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and that is a bit of the speaking the language thing that you're talking about. You know, you're busy, you're, your manager walking in, think about this. What's your manager had? You walk into a bunch of, uh, you know, propeller head meetings, and all they do is throw acronyms at you for the first ten minutes. It's like they don't. It, it, the developers are telling you, "We don't want you here. We don't care what you think. Um, we're here for us, and you are here uh, by sufferance." And you know, as the guy who writes the check, you know what? I, I'm I'm looking at those guys. I'm just thinking about how I can get rid of them. <laughs> So you you have set up an antagonistic situation between two parties that yes. should be working together right from the get-go. Whereas if you do what you're talking about there, John, and you say, you know, you here are your guests. The business, you know, the business manager, they're, they're your guests. Let's start 
from their perspective and work our way this you know and uh it just makes all the difference it really can and hey, friends i i want to thank you for sharing your stories today and and the learning lessons that hopefully you all in the audience can uh, commiserate with some of the things or empathize with some of the things we've been saying here. Uh, we're not perfect in any way, and we're not saying we've got it all figured out, far from no. us. But hopefully some of these lessons can help you in your daily technical lives and careers. I'll leave you with one final thought from us all, because I think we dropped quite a bit here. Uh, as we thank our sponsors for keeping us on the air and for all you for listening to us. And this is a quote that I've read in a book uh, by Terry Brooks, one of my favorite uh, fiction authors. Keep in mind this piece here. Here's the quote. Life is an education. It is learned mostly through what you discover on your own and not through what others tell you. So despite what Dan and Ward and I are saying here today, uh, you're going to make some of these mistakes and some of these experiences yourselves. Uh, you're going to learn more by going through it and by failing than you ever will by someone telling you what's going to happen. So don't be afraid to fail. Uh, it's okay to do that. Just remember to try to not repeat your own history. Any final thoughts there, Dan or Ward? Uh, I'd wrap up by, I think we hit on, like you said, we dropped a lot of information there and um, a lot of it, you just have to experience yourself, I think. But I'll go back to, if you pick your favorite musician, um, what is and you've seen them live let's say let's say your favorite live musician can you learn how to play that instrument as good as them maybe maybe not but at least you can practice that part but do you have that stage presence they have now that's a little more challenging and that's usually what sets apart some of these music musicians i think the same thing for development we all practice 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 our development and that's great i mean we need to that's our job but there's so much other practice we need to be doing in these other areas that we've discussed uh, in this episode. And, you know, that could be as simple as being more humble about your approach to things, listening more, whatever it may be. So uh, I always try to look at things as, there, yeah, I need to be a good developer technically, but there's just this human side of things that I also need to practice as well. So it's important. Good point. I want to encourage our listeners who probably have their own stories and Maybe if you're feeling like it and you want to send it to us at WebRush, um, we'll find a way to work that into something in the future or react to it in some fashion. So um, leave us a comment um, or an email or something with your story. That's a great point, Ward. And I, we always love hearing from our audience. So if you want to be on the show or you just have a, th a topic that you want to raise with us and you want us to talk about, please reach out to us at WebRush through the website. Or through Twitter, you can find us at web underscore rush. And thank you, Ward and Dan, for sharing so much today and being vulnerable on the show. Um, some good stories, some good topics. And thank you all for listening to us for yet another week of Web Rush. You'll hear from us every Thursday morning. See you next time. <laughs>